sorry, to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we are going to resume our study in Ruth, uh, Lord willing, next week. As we finish chapter 3, it seemed like a, a natural breaking point, and some things came to mind that I felt encouraged to address, and so I want to do that this morning. I'm going to be reading in Hebrews chapter 4, if you'll take your Bibles and follow along with me, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 14, uh, my focus is going to be uh, verses 16 through 18, but let us read from God's Word today, Hebrews 4, beginning in verse for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a, a great privilege it is for us to be gathered here today to celebrate the gospel here on the first day of the week, the day on which our Lord Jesus rose from the grave. We celebrate his resurrection and we celebrate all the many implications of that to us. So we give thanks for the opportunity to be able to gather and we pray that in this time you would please bless us, your people. We pray that you would bless your word to our hearts. We pray that you would open our eyes and that you would reveal the Lord Jesus to us more fully. We pray that you would warm our hearts, that you would strengthen our faith, that our love for you and for one another and for the lost in this world would increase. We pray for much grace today, Father. We lift up those who are in need and who are hurting. We thank you for hearing our prayers for Stacy's Uncle Lewis, and we thank you for uh, an amazing turnaround in his situation. We just pray, Father, for uh, your blessing upon him as he continues to recover at home. We Lift up our brother Vodi Balkum to you today, and how we pray, Father, for your blessing upon him. We pray that he would get the care that he needs. Thank you for the outpouring of love prompted by your spirit upon your people to give and support. Father, we pray for 
For those who were unable to be here with us today, we lift them up to you. Whatever their needs may be, how we pray, Father, that you would meet them, encourage them, strengthen them. Now we join together and pray as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this week I've been contemplating my own frustrations, anxieties, weaknesses, struggles with sin, and in all of that, I can find comfort in only one thing, and that is knowing that there is one who understands. We have a Savior who not only saved us, but came to this world, took on human flesh, and lived here, and experienced humanity. I think we need to be careful in however we construct our perception of Jesus that it is not so great to the side of his divinity that we neglect his humanity. Jesus was the God-man, fully God, but fully man. And that means so much to us. He is one who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We've been reading about that in, in the scriptures and singing songs about that. And, and we recognize our Lord Jesus as one who sympathizes with us, though no one else may understand what it is that you've been through, maybe what it is that you are going through right now. There is one who does. Better than anyone else. He understands, and it is to our Lord Jesus that we turn. This is a word we need today because we have many weaknesses, don't we? More than we know. We struggle with sin and temptation, and we struggle with our past, which sometimes creeps up and haunts us unawares. We struggle with the future, don't we? Some of us, we, we are afraid that what has happened in the past may again happen in the future, and so we worry. We deal with anxiety and fear and maybe even depression. And so to cope with these things, often we will turn to substance, alcohol, or other ways that we find to depend, uh, dependencies, entertainment, distractions, whatever we can find to take our minds off of things. And sometimes these become addictions, which then turns into another problem. <laughs> Maybe we isolate ourselves because we don't think anyone gets us. No one else understands. In public, we can put on a good face and we can look like everything's okay. But when we're all alone... We feel so alone that no one understands. 
And even the strongest of Christians, maybe they're not dealing with anxiety and depression and some of these emotional things, but everybody is dealing with something on some level or another. Some of us are just really, really good at disguising how well we deal with it. We're all dealing with weaknesses, and we may try to convince ourselves that no one understands, when in fact our text here tells us that there is one who understands. He, he sympathizes with us, and though all the world may not understand, Jesus does. And what does that mean? It means everything for us. We're needy people, broken, struggling with sin, struggling with temptation, all the various weaknesses that I've mentioned, and we have much to help us, don't we? We have, we have Christian friends, thank God for that. Uh, we have a church family, we can never discount that. We're thankful for prayer and God's word, all the things that the Lord has afforded to us, but we don't have anything like Jesus. We have him, and he is more than sufficient. He knows and he understands. So here's our approach this morning as we focus in on these verses here in Hebrews chapter 4. I first want to point out three characteristics about Jesus, our great high priest, and then second, we're going to consider what our response must be to the great high priest. And then finally, we're going to look at the benefit to that response, what we receive from our great high priest. So let's begin. What does our text tell us about Jesus? Well, if you look there in verse 14, Jesus is called our great high priest. Now, that's an important theme throughout this epistle to the Hebrews. It's first mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 17, which says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every respect, don't miss that, so that he might become a faithful and a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, made like his brothers in every respect. Did you catch that? Now that's quite a bit to unpack, and I don't want to go back to that verse, but I think there is a hint there of what we're going to be seeing here. There's a connection to what we're seeing here in our text. So as I mentioned, three aspects characteristics of Jesus as our great high priest here mentioned in these verses. And the first one is his transcendence, the transcendence of Jesus. That is the exaltation of Christ, not just to the, the right hand of the Father, not just his ascension into earth, but his transcendence from this realm into another realm, into the very presence of of God. Now we may ask in communicating the ministry of Jesus, why does the writer so designate him as he does, as our great high priest? Well, where do you think he gets this idea? He didn't drum this up, did he? Of course, this is something that we see back in the Old Testament. And so let's do a quick history lesson. We go back to the Exodus, and you remember that story when God sends the plagues upon Egypt. He, he brings his people out, and, and there they are in the wilderness. They, they come over to Mount Sinai. 
and a very majestic thing takes place there as God comes down and reveals himself to his people and he gives them the covenant. Remember the Ten Commandments that are given for us in Exodus 20 and then following that, uh, Moses is going back and forth up on to the top of Mount Sinai communicating with God and God is giving him all the instructions about uh, how he's to be worshipped now as he has called his people out of bondage. And he's forming them into a new nation, a holy people. And what does he focus on primarily? On how he is to be worshipped. And so he sets up a special place for worship. He gives Moses the instructions for this tabernacle, the special tent. And he also explains to him uh, of a priesthood. And this priesthood is given to Moses' brother Aaron. So Aaron and his sons will serve in the priesthood. In fact, only Aaron and his sons. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron to serve in the priesthood. Moses is given instructions about the design of this tabernacle, this special tent. It had special furniture. It had one particular special piece of furniture that was going to be made of wood and then overlaid with gold. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. This particular piece of furniture would be put into a special room. Adjacent to that room was another room, and in that room there was a table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. There was a veil separating these rooms. Outside the tent there was a courtyard. Now, this veil that is separating these rooms, there's one room called the, the most holy place or the holy of holies, and the other room is called the holy place. Now here in Hebrews 4, the writer mentions that the high priest Jesus has passed through the heavens. What do you think he means? Well, this indicates that the exaltation of Christ, the transcendent Christ, is where? Well, he's in heaven. And what he has in mind here is how this is pictured in this tent. You see, this this holy of holies, the, the most holy place, was symbolic of heaven. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and this was the special place where God came down and manifested his presence there between the two cherubim with their outstretched wings. When the blood was dripped there, God would come down and meet his people. and You would see the presence of God. Later in Hebrews, regarding the tabernacle, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, referring to the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so where Christ is now was pictured in this process of the high priest passing through the outer court and into the holy place and then into the holy of holies, heaven itself pictured there. Now, stay with me. The high priest under the old covenant could only enter the holy of holies one day a year. This particular day was called the Day of Atonement. For those of you that followed up on the assignment that was given to you Wednesday night, you read about that in Leviticus 16, right? And it was on this day 
that the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and make atonement for the people. And what the writer here in this epistle to the Hebrews explains is that Jesus, as the end-time fulfillment of what was typified under the Old Covenant, has passed through the heavens and has presented himself to the Father with his precious blood. This is the culmination of the atonement, if you will. Hebrews 9.12 says, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is what is so important about the exalted Christ, the transcendent Christ who has passed through the heavens. That's why this phrase is so important. It speaks to us of the atonement of the Lord Jesus with his own precious blood. Now it may be that because our Lord is exalted, transcendent, in the heavens, at the right hand of the Father, we may think that he's, he's so far away that he's lost touch with us. And so to bring things back into balance, the writer continues on and says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. And so we see this second aspect of Jesus that we must see his sympathy. His sympathy. Uh, notice there the wording that is employed in Scripture. It's a double negative, isn't it? Did you catch that? We do not have one who is unable. Now, why do you think he does that? Well, many scholars think that, that this is a, a technique used to emphasize something. If you have a double negative, it, it's better than a positive. It's, it's, it's more emphasis. In fact, one of the Puritans Thomas Godwin says in a sermon on this text, two negatives not only make an affirmation, but affirm more strongly. And so the writer here is emphasizing the fact that Jesus most assuredly does sympathize with us. The word sympathize is a compound word. The, the word here in the original Greek takes the prefix of with and puts it with the verb to suffer. And so what we have here is a description of Jesus who is so aware of us, so near to us that he is suffering with us. He has come into this world and suffered in the same way that we have. He understands. He's, he's been here. He is the divine Son of God exalted in the heavens, yes. But do not forget that your high priest sympathizes with you. He's been here. He understands whatever it is that you are going through. The Word became flesh. Uh, John uses this, uh, this phrase, and, and that's really amazing, isn't it, to think about that. It's, it's very hard for us to get our minds around it because I think in, in trying to, to come up with a, a, a picture of Jesus, we we shift so much towards his divinity at the expense of his humanity. We think of Jesus as like a superhero who could just, you know, drum up some divinity at any point and avoid any kind of suffering. But that's not the way that Scripture presents him to us. As we move toward Easter, we think about the 
the suffering of Christ, the passion, passion week, as if to think that that, that, that might have been the only time he suffered, and that's not true. Jesus was a human being. And so day after day after day, he dealt with the same things that you and I have to deal with. <laughs> he knows the frustration of strained relationships and betrayal and abandonment and being cursed and mocked of carrying a, a heavy heart. He knows physical pain. He knows emotional pain. Wherever you are today, Jesus knows. He sympathizes. It says he sympathizes with our weaknesses. What does this word mean? Well, uh, this word is used uh, in different ways. One, it describes a particular illness. In Luke 5.15, great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmity. So that's one way. But, but also, it speaks of uh, physical limitations, uh, such as when Paul, he's, he's stricken with this thorn in the flesh, and he prays that the Lord would remove it. But the Lord tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Or, or that is, in your inability, that's when my grace kicks in. And further, it speaks of our inadequacies, as in Romans 8.26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And the context there in Romans 8 is is us struggling so much uh, that we don't even know how to pray. And what happens? The Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, comes along to help us when we need to pray. He understands, brothers and sisters. He knows your situation wherever you are. He knows the pain, the suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, whatever it is you're going through. He knows. And so we we have this divinity of Jesus and then the humanity, and so we go back and forth, and we have to be careful, and the writer balances it out perfectly, doesn't he? Because now he shifts back to the other way and thinks that unless we think that Jesus experienced everything like us to the extent that maybe he even sinned, oh no. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, that's a very important designation, isn't it? As sympathetic as Jesus is, he was not sympathetic in the sense that he experienced everything. That struggle that you have with whatever sin that may be, Jesus didn't didn't experience that. Our weaknesses are, are not only limitations and inadequacies and hurt feelings and physical pain, but a lot of this is caused by our own sinfulness. And so we must make this distinction that Jesus understands. He sympathizes, and he can, he can sympathize like no one else. No one sympathizes with you like Jesus. But as he walked this earth, not once did he succumb to temptation. And I believe that Jesus was constantly bombarded with temptation. We read about the temptations of Jesus after his baptism. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record Jesus going out into the wilderness and being tempted. And we might think, well, that was it, just those 40 days. No, no, no. I think Jesus was tempted throughout his life. 
Whatever temptation you face, don't ever say, Jesus wouldn't know about this. He does. And of course, this, this word here, it's translated tempted. That's really not the best translation. It's a word that could refer to temptation, but it could also refer to, to testing, to trials. And so Jesus endured temptations from Satan, and he also was tested by the Father. So you and I, we don't just go through temptations. We go through trials, don't we? We go through things where our faith is tested and it's, it's strengthened and it's shown to be pure. It's made pure. And in every case, whatever it was, Jesus withstood for your sake. Otherwise, he would not be the, the sinless, spotless lamb who could ascend to the Father's right hand and present his precious blood to make full atonement. And then where would we be? <laughs> this is Jesus, our great high priest, transcendent, sympathetic, and sinless. So we have this great presentation of Jesus, but we also see that there is a response that is necessary. It does us no good to know all of this and not respond and so the writer here calls on us to respond in at least two particular ways. And the first one is holding fast. Holding fast. Look again at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now in expressing this, the writer, what's he doing? Well, he's telling us there's going to be opposition. I think of, of Stacy sometimes when we go shopping, uh, just for safety, she puts her purse up on her shoulder, she puts her arm through and she grabs those straps just in case. She knows there could be opposition. You don't just throw it in the buggy and I do that, she gets on to me. Hey, watch my purse. No, you hold on. Why would the writer tell us to hold on? Because there's going to be a force pulling it away. Another Puritan, John Owen, has a great commentary on Hebrews, by the way, and he says that this phrase means to lay hold of a thing, to retain it with all our might as if it were ready every moment to be taken from us with a violent and strong hand. And so we must recognize that in responding to our great high priest, we need to hold on, don't we? We need, to, we need to cling, we need to grip tightly to what? Well, it says here, our confession. Or if you have the King James, it says our, our profession. Uh, now, what does this mean? Does this mean the, the 1689 confession or the Westminster confession? No, not, not really, but in a sense it does. And let me explain. The word here, the Greek word is, Homologous, homologous, same words. That is to say that we have a confession, that we are in agreement with others who have made a statement. And what is that statement? That statement is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. Or as he puts it here in our text in verse, at the end of verse 14, Jesus the Son of God. The importance of holding on to the gospel is something we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. 
It says there, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And so, here in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul there is telling this church, Now, here's the gospel. He'll go into that in verses 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But before that, he says, now you've got to hold on to that. Cling tightly. Why? Because there's an opposing force that's going to be trying to take it away from you. Now, there could be a pushback against this. Wait a second. Are you saying that this is up to me? that I've got to, to hold on to this or I could lose my salvation. I thought, you know, we good Baptists, we believe once saved, always saved, don't we? That if the Lord saves us, we could never be lost, right? Well, brothers and sisters, I think it's important that we are careful to not presume upon the grace of God and prove ourselves to have never been saved. One who truly is will cling, but you cannot ignore the admonition or, as Owen calls it, our duty. Duty? There's a duty? Again, this is John Owen. So then this verse containeth the prescription of a duty with a motive and an encouragement under the due performance of it. The duty is expressed in these last words, let us hold fast our profession or I risk a little bit of silliness here. If you want something more contemporary, don't stop believing. That's a very important concept, is it? In other words, believing is not just acknowledging, is it? Holding fast to the confession is not just being in agreement with it. It's just trusting it. It's saying, I'll put my life at stake. If you believe, you profess. Amen? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Romans 10.10 10. So because we have such a great high priest, we hold fast to our confession. What other options do we have? <laughs> who else is there who can understand? Who, as the hymn writer says, can all our sorrows share? So we cling to the hope of the gospel. And there's a second response given here, along with the holding fast of the confession, we see that there must also be a, a drawing near. We draw near. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near. We have described Jesus, our great high priest, as one who has passed through the heavens even more so, as stated in Hebrews 8.1, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And again, our temptation might be to think of someone who is so far away, who is so distant. He's, he's not troubled with us. We think of his glory and his transcendence and his holiness and his separateness. But we must recognize that not only has he come to us and has entered the human race and has become like us, 
But he tells us to come to him. And not just to come, but to come close. Drawn near, the word used here is a word that would describe someone coming into the presence of a deity as an act of worship or to approach royalty. Reverence is conveyed for sure, and we should never come to our Lord irreverently. We recognize the importance of that, but, but what does the writer say? What is his emphasis on? He, he says, uh, come, but not just to come and not just draw near, but to do so with confidence, with boldness. Think about that. When you think of the image of a, uh, if you use your imagination, you picture a throne, a throne room. It's very austere. It's usually up, lifted up. And a deity or a, a royalty, a king or queen draped in robes, it's, it's intimidating, isn't it? Make our knees knock to go into the presence of a king or queen or emperor. But this great high priest, who is also our great king, we must recognize that propitiation has been made. He has presented his blood to the Father, whose wrath has been turned away, and so we have nothing to fear. We can come. We can come with confidence. Has Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, or has he not? And if you believe he has, then you can come with confidence. The charges have all been dropped. What do you have to fear? Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? The wrath of God has been stayed because of Jesus. And so there's nothing to fear. We have access to this very throne room of our great king and our great high priest. This is Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, do you see? Not only has Jesus gone through and passed through and gone there, but we can too. With confidence. What's he telling us? We can call on our Lord Jesus, that our prayers can ascend to Him and His ear is there. He sympathizes with us. He understands. He's waiting. He's listening. He knows. And so we can, with great confidence, draw near. We have access to Him. Well, that is the description of our Lord Jesus and, and the response to him, our great high priest. But now I want us to consider one final point this morning, and that is the benefit of drawing near. What do we receive in coming close to the Lord? Well, our text indicates that we receive two things. Verse 16 again, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, let's Let's just talk about these here just for a moment. Mercy and grace. We, we use these terms often. Sometimes we use them interchangeably. They're not exactly the same. They're very similar. We think of 
mercy in regard to pardon for sin, and, and that is certainly true. But I think what our writer here is aiming at is not so much our, our sinfulness and our confession of sin, but our weaknesses, right? This is what he's talking about. Again, John Owen, he says that the writer here is not discoursing about sin and, and the guilt of it, but about temptations, afflictions, and persecutions. Wherefore, mercy here intended must be that which is the principle or cause of our support, assistance, and deliverance, namely in the effects of it. Owen goes on to explain that the word here that's translated mercy is what we so often find in the Old Testament as loving kindness. If you have a King James, you see that phrase a lot as, as describing God or steadfast love in the ESV. Everybody remember the Greek or the Hebrew word I told you that we have to remember in Ruth is the word kesed, steadfast love, the covenant love of God. And that is what is conveyed here. In this word, this idea of, of mercy as we approach the throne of grace. And now we consider this final word, grace. When we come to the Lord, we receive mercy. And we find grace to help us in our time of need. Are you in a time of need? Are you looking for some help? If you look to the throne of grace, this text tells us that you'll find it. You'll find it. The grace is there. <laughs> it's the description of the throne. Again, I think we think of the throne as intimidating. It's this symbol of, of power, absolute power. And who would, who would dare come near to the throne? And the writer here describes it as a throne of grace. Where the great high priest sits and awaits to dispense grace, all the grace you need. He'll never stop. Oh, you've used up all your expenditure of grace. I'm sorry. Never will he say that. We come before the throne of grace in weakness, and the Lord dispenses grace. I go back to. Thomas Goodwin, who says here that there is grace to help against the power of sin and mercy against the guilt and the punishment of it. Think again of Paul's quote. What did the Lord Jesus say? Paul prayed three times, please take this away. Please take this away, God. Please, please take this thorn in the flesh. No, no, no. You'll make it. Just keep trying. Is that, is that the response he got? My grace is sufficient. My grace. That's what you need. You need me. You don't need more of you. You don't need you trying to figure it out. You don't need to try to figure out your anxiety, your depression, your anger, your frustration, your hurt feelings, the physical pain, the suffering and the loss that you've gone through. You can't figure it out. And there may be a, a certain measure of help from a doctor or for some medication. I'm not going to discount that. But more than anything, you need a great high priest who knows. And he knows. 
And there is great mercy and grace with the Lord Jesus who isn't just sitting back pondering, wondering, well, if they come, I'll be here. He invites us. He exhorts us. He commands us. Let us boldly with confidence come to the throne of grace and there we will find mercy and grace in our time of need. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the great encouragement of the gospel. A gospel that declares to us our Lord Jesus who became a man, took on human flesh and blood and died for us and bled for us, suffered for us, was raised and ascended for us. And even now, the ministry of our Lord Jesus continues and he beckons us to come. So we heed that call today. We have no other hope but you. O great high priest who sympathizes with us, you know, you understand. And so we pray for your grace and mercy to be dispensed to us today in great measure. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.